So let me pray for us and then we're gonna dive into the book of Colossians today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its authoritative nature. We, as we come each week uh, to learn from it, we're glad, so glad that corporately we can come together and examine your word and we pray that you would teach us not to just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it. We pray, Holy Spirit, right now that you would make us tender to your word. I pray that for myself as the one teaching now, but I pray it for all of us as we listen and hear. And we thank you for this you know, next space of time that we have to be still and quiet and receive from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we open our hands really just to say we are excited to be here in the midst of your people, our church family, and to receive from you from your word in this time. And pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. We are beginning today a study of the book of Colossians. And uh, I have been super excited about this. It's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. I love it and I adore it. And so what I want to do today is to talk a little bit uh, about an overview. So I've been trying to discipline myself to say everything I'm going to talk about today is just to kind of whet the appetite and it's a big picture of the themes of Colossians so that when we dive deep uh, into the details each week now, after this one, we'll kind of spend more time talking deals, but I'm prone to want to start talking details right away. So I got to kind of back it up. So as we think about the theme of Colossians, I'll introduce it this way. Uh, we, I would say, as a people, culturally, are pretty fascinated with celebrity. Would you agree with that? We like to know what's going on in the lives of celebrities. So I spent a little time looking up interesting facts about celebrities this week. And I bet that you didn't know some of these, these things. So our, our first uh, celebrity is right here. How many of you know this guy? Did you know that Elvis Presley is a blonde? That's a dye job, y'all. Right? I don't know if you knew that. It's a dye job, right? So, or how about this? Uh, you'll know him, I'm sure. Steve Jobs became a vegan. And he became a vegan for the strangest reason I think I've ever heard. He became a vegan because he thought that the diet would eliminate the need to bathe. That is odd. All right. In the first service, when I said Steve Jobs became a vegan, somebody went, woohoo! And then they waited for the rest of the sentence and it was not as good. <laughs> to which then several meat eaters, because I'm a meat eater, and then like the rest of everybody chimed in. I was like, yes. We had to remind ourselves that we're one in Christ Jesus. We're one. Or uh, you might know this guy, James Earl Jones, yes. Voice of Darth Vader and voice of many, uh, Field of Dreams, if you've seen it, a great role he plays. He's just one of the classic voices in all of Hollywood. If you didn't know this, James Earl Jones had a stutter as a child that caused him to be nearly silent for eight years. Eight years he didn't use his voice. Or this guy, a little older, but you'll recognize one of our former presidents, Theodore Roosevelt. Did you know that Theodore Roosevelt read an average over the course of his life, an average of one book a day? I am slacking in my reading habits. How about y'all? One book a day. Now, I don't know if it was kids' comic books or something, but he read one a day. That's what I, that's what I have learned. This is my favorite fact, by the way. So this is, who knows? Buzz Aldrin, I hear... A murmur. I'll assume you said Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, so this is Buzz Aldrin, first man on the moon, right? Yeah. Did you know that 40 years after being the first man to walk on the moon, that he recorded a rap song produced by Snoop Dogg? <laughs> Absolutely fascinating to me. It is called The Rocket Experience, and I have not found it yet, but I will find it on Spotify this week. That will happen. Because that's too much. You know, we, we're so fascinated with celebrity. We've created a whole industry and business around celebrity. So you'll recognize the cover of a magazine like this. This is People Magazine. 
And I'm sure you care that the bachelor got betrayed. This is even more fascinating, by the way. We have created a whole section of television for people who are not celebrities to make them celebrities so that we can enjoy more celebrity. Right? That's how fascinating with celebrity we are. These people are not important. Well, they are to God, but not, <laughs> not to me. Right? So I, I don't care that he was betrayed or that he made a huge mistake or whatever it tells me. Or the next one, right? Their real life romance, Vanessa and Zach. I don't care about teenagers, real life romance. Don't care. Right? Or the last one, Jen's heartbreak. I do care that she's heartbroken. That's sad. Yeah, that was good to take it down at that point because I had nowhere else to go with that. The point is this, right? The point is this. We're, we're fascinated with celebrity. You know, we create industries around it. Magazines thrive because we'll pick them up and we'll read about them. I'm not here to bash you if you're a People Magazine reader. I just rec- want you to recognize we are fascinated. We are fascinated with celebrity. We want to know the details of their lives. We want to know the content of what they think and what they do. And, you know, look, they're just like us. They get their Starbucks too, right? I mean, we're so interested. We're so fascinated in celebrity. And as we open a study of the book of Colossians, here's how that's relevant. Because Colossians is going to invite you to let go of fascination with other things and to become exceedingly fascinated with who Jesus is, with the person of all persons, the most truly human person that has ever lived because he was God in the flesh, which that sounds like an oxymoron to say that the most truly human person who's ever lived was God in the flesh, but he has displayed for us once and for all, for all time, what it means to truly be human, made in the image of God, bearing the likeness of God in all his fullness, unique among every person who's ever walked the face of the planet. The book of Colossians is predominantly a book that proclaims the absolute astounding worth of Jesus. That's really what it's about, the whole thing. The whole thing. So we're going to spend an entire semester just examining the absolute worth of Jesus and how you live in light of the fact that he is who he is. It's going to talk in two specific ways about Jesus' unrivaled merit. And we're calling this series The Unrivaled Christ because the center of the book, the central idea of the book is conveyed in chapter 1, verse 18, when it talks about what Jesus has done on the cross and done in creation. And then it says, he's done all that in order that he might be, and it uses this great word, and Messiah students, you should know this word, right? that he might be preeminent. If you go to Messiah, you should recognize that, right? Because that is your church, that's your school's mission statement. In all things, Christ preeminent. I don't know if I'm saying it exactly right, but I know it's on, when I drive in, I see it there, right? That he might be preeminent is the idea of Colossians. The central idea is conveyed in that one verse, chapter one, verse 18, Christ is preeminent. Another way to say that word is to say he is unrivaled. He is unrivaled in worth. He is unrivaled in merit. He is unrivaled in his being. And so today I just want to simply talk about some of the ways that Colossians portrays how Christ is unrivaled for us. And here's where I think it's going to do two, it's going to predominantly, the book is going to give us two ways that Christ is unrivaled. It's going to say he's unrivaled in his nature and he's unrivaled in his power. Unrivaled in nature and unrivaled in power. In other words, maybe another way to say that is to say that Christ is unrivaled in who he is and he's unrivaled in what he does. He's unrivaled in who he is, and he's unrivaled in what he does. 
And it's gonna again and again go back to those realities and express for us that he is unique and unrivaled. And because he's unrivaled in the world and in the universe in terms of his merit and in terms of his worth, he is meant to be unrivaled in our lives. A being who is unrivaled in all their power and nature in the way that Jesus is, is meant to be unrivaled in our lives. And so we'll see this, this thing that happens in the book where in chapter one, there's this high uh, deep praise of Jesus. And chapter two, it kind of continues some of that thinking. And then in chapter three, it really turns its attention to very practical matters. And it says, look, because he's unrivaled in, in his worth in the way that you've now seen, live this way. Live this way. Make these kinds of choices. You know, guide your life accordingly to what you've seen in these first two chapters. That's really what Colossians, how it's gonna challenge us. And it's gonna have a lot to, to say to us about that. Now, let me say this. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, here's, here's my real hope. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, often we sing praises to Jesus. We talk about his name as a church. We always aim to fill that, uh, those praises with deep content because what we don't want is just a Jesus pep rally that's sort of vapid and empty. We're not really interested in just getting together and go, Jesus is so great. And then somebody going, why? And all of us going, I don't really know. We want you to know why he's great. We want you to feel it in your bones because you have been taught in your minds and taken it down into your beliefs and into your heart and you've said he is astoundingly great. Now, that said, if you're skeptical, if you are examining faith in Christ or perhaps you're, you're counter to it, you just, you just dismiss it, but you, you know, you've come today uh, with a friend the thing I want you to see, my hope is uh, to, I recognize you will not treat the word of God as authoritative. Recognize we do, right? As followers of Jesus, we do. So when we read what the scriptures say about Christ, we take it as truth. We take it as representing actuality and fact. And so we read it and, and um, we, we take what it says and believe it and want to follow it. But we recognize that that may not be your perception. That may not be where you're coming from. My hope is throughout this series to be able to show you how what the scripture is saying about who Jesus is and the content of his absolute worth, right? Of his unrivaled worth, how that gets displayed and played out in a thousand small ways in the world in which we live. So that you might see that what is on the pages of the scripture is absolutely testified to in the world that you're inhabiting every day. Uh, and my hope is that that might draw you to see that the, again, as we said, the unrivaled worth of this one calls for you to give your life to him, calls for you to live accordingly. And that's, you know, that's really for all of us, those of us who are following Jesus, to walk with him more closely, more fully, to be more surrendered to him because we see his unrivaled merit. The best thing any church can do for you, friend, the best thing any church can do for you is to help you see how, how magnificent Jesus is. Because whatever has your affections most will dictate your actions. They will determine how you live. If your affections are given to money, you will be driven in your decisions by that affection. If your affections are given to a, a, another person, then your affections will be driven by that person. Like if you are, you know, if you are driven solely and wholly by a love for your kids in the world, then you will live accordingly. Right? If you are driven by, well, you name it, 
fill in the gap, whatever has your affections will absolutely determine the trajectory and the decisions of your life. And our hope is that you would see that Jesus should be first and most in your affections. And then in being so, he would then dictate to you the choices that you make and how you live. That's really our ambition in the book of Colossians. So having introduced that, here's the question I wanna answer today. And at a very 50,000 foot level, and then we'll kind of dig deep in the weeks that come after this into the content, deeper into the content of what we're gonna talk about today. I just simply wanna give you five reasons why Christ is unrivaled in his merit, in his worth. Five reasons why Christ is unrivaled in his merit, in his worth. The first one is this, is that he reveals truth. He reveals truth. And when I say truth, I don't mean uh, small T truth. I mean capital T truth. It's very popular in our day and age to think of truth only in small T terms. And what I mean by that is when we talk about this term relativism, which we've touched on throughout the weeks, uh, that's what we mean. That your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. His truth is his truth. And her truth is her truth, right? That everybody has a small T version of truth that they live their life according to. And there's really not one overarching broader truth that, that can call all of those small t truths that we believe and and say this one is false or this one is true according to how it fits underneath this. So swimming in those waters, so to speak, one of the things we need to recognize is that Jesus is making a really big claim in the book of Colossians when he says, I represent capital T truth to you. Everything is either true or false based upon whether or not I say it is true or false. That's the essence of of the claim about the merit and the worth of Jesus that's being made in the book of Colossians and clearly not only there throughout the scriptures. But I want you to see it and I'll show you how that happens. But let me just say here very quickly, uh, for those of you who are maybe in that camp of thinking, you know, I have loved the idea of Jesus as a good moral teacher. I've loved the idea of Jesus as uh, a kind teacher, a kind leader. And I love that he loves the least of these. And when he heals the sick, that seems pretty significant. And he cares about the poor and justice. And, and so I'm, I'm kind of on board with who I see him to be but I, I don't accept his claims to be divine. The thing that you need to recognize is that Colossians, the, the picture that Paul is gonna paint of Jesus in Colossians is gonna really undermine that perception. It's gonna really come underneath that. And it's gonna say, well, no, he's not gonna allow you to just think that about him. He's not gonna allow you to stand on that ground to say, you know, I like him as a moral teacher and I like some of the stuff he offers, but I'm not gonna worship him as deity. He really doesn't give us that ground. He says, you have to choose. I'm either not a good moral teacher or I am God, right? Because I claim, he's claiming something here that goes far beyond simply some good morality that he can offer you. So he claims to be capital T truth. Let me show you how I know that and where that comes from. Look at, so texts like this one, Colossians 1.15, and we're gonna bounce around here throughout the book today. So we'll have the words on the screen, but it's only probably two pages or three pages in your Bible, so you don't have to flip too much. Colossians chapter one, verse 15 says, he, speaking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we have there this statement that he is he is the very likeness, the image of the invisible God. In other words, he makes visible what is not visible. We don't see God the Father. But Jesus makes God the Father visible because he took on human form, took on flesh, became incarnate. Then in verse 19 of chapter 1, we hear this. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now get that. That's a pretty big statement because what he's saying is that in someone who appeared to simply be a human being, the fullness of God, which I don't think we can even ponder that, was pleased, pleased to dwell. Like it pleased God for all the fullness of him, the Father, to dwell in the Son, which is to make a claim of absolute divinity. A, a declaration that he is God. There is no one else in all humanity who has ever or will ever say that the fullness of God dwells in them. Then in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, and I love this because it gets at this truth idea. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, it says that their hearts may be encouraged. He's talking about a, a church in Laodicea. It says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in other words, what he's saying is there is a full assurance. Now, how many of you would like to live with a sense of full assurance? That's a pretty good deal, right? And so he says, if you want to have the riches of full assurance then you are going to reach that through an understanding of God's mystery. So then the question that that begs is to say, well, what, what's God's mystery, right? I want to understand God's mystery in order that I might have the riches of full assurance. And the answer to that comes right on the heels of it. The next phrase in the verse is to say, which is what? Which is Christ. He is the very mystery of God revealed. Now, what I could have said is the reason that Christ is unrivaled in merit is that he fully displays God. Because that's clearly what these texts are telling us, right? He, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. He is the image of the invisible God, right? The, he is the mystery of God. So all those things tell us that Christ is the perfect representation. Christ is the perfect representation of God the Father. But the reason I say that he reveals truth with a capital T is because if there is a God who created the universe, then he establishes in that universe what things are true and what things are not simply by what accords with his nature and what diverts from his nature, right? Now that's kind of a, maybe a, a bit of a heady idea. I, I just simply mean this. God determines what is true by what he creates and what he makes. He determines the nature of what is true in the world. Would you agree with that? And if Jesus fully displays the nature of God, then Jesus fully displays what truth is. Do you follow that? Jesus, by virtue of his actions, by virtue of his nature, his character, his teachings, displays for us what is ultimately true in the universe. So here's what that means. Let's, I mean, let's brass tacks this, okay? Let's get down to the bottom line. What that ultimately then tells us is, if I choose to live my life according to Jesus' commands and his teaching and underneath his authority, if I do that, then I am aligning my choices with the very nature of truth as established by God and revealed in Jesus in the world. But if I choose to live my life in some other way, what I'm choosing to do is disalign myself from the way the world actually works. The world works according to what is true as established by God and to submit and live underneath that is to live according to what is true. And so to not be sort of fighting against the grain. I was talking recently with a friend who loves to run and she trains for marathons. And I did a couple a long time ago 
And I ran the Chicago Marathon when I was living in Chicago. I did it twice. And the Chicago Marathon is where the world record for the marathon is held. It was, it was set in Chicago, I think, the last three times it was set. I, it may have changed. I haven't kept up. But last I heard, the, the last multiple times the record was set and broken, it was done in Chicago. Why do you think the record was set in Chicago? Because it's very flat. That's exactly right. And as I was talking to my friend, she said, you know what I love about running in Pennsylvania? The hills. And I said, you're insane. <laughs> because who wants to run uphill when you can run on a flat course? You will set the world record on a flat course. You ain't setting the record in Pennsylvania. All right? Because you're running uphill half the time. And then the downhill stinks too because it's rough on your knees. And let's not get into all that. All right? My point there is this, Right? Essentially, the same is true when it comes to aligning your life with what is dictated by God and revealed in Jesus to be big T, capital T, truth. To align your life with that is to run on a flat road and to not have to fight uphill all the time. If you choose to disalign your life with the truth of God revealed in Christ, you are essentially choosing to live your life running uphill constantly because you are, you are disaligning yourself with the very nature, the very fabric of the way the world was made to work, right? This gets displayed in all kinds of things, right? One of the reasons, friends, one of the reasons, I can't tell you how many people I have in my office where, oh, through the years, where I've, I've tried to explain why to young couples, we say you should abstain from sex until you get married. It just sounds like this big drawback, this like denial of pleasure that God wants to. And the thing I, I try to paint a picture of every time is God has aligned sexuality to be between a man and woman in the covenant of marriage because when it takes place in that context, it is so life-giving and so good and so rich that it brings joy. It's like glue to a marriage. It is so good and so fun. And your, your disaligning from that is only going to cause you harm. I know it doesn't feel that way now, but just trust me. Just trust me, you're gonna bring other images and, and pictures and thoughts into that marital bed that don't ever have to be there if you'll align yourself with the very nature and person of God in Christ and what he's revealed about sexuality and how we should live in it. You will experience such joy and freedom if you will walk in that. It's for your joy. We're fighting for your joy when we call you to this type of life. We're not fighting against your joy. And it, that, can be hard to, that can be hard to kind of get our minds around sometimes, but friends, trust me when I say that to align yourself with the purposes and ways of Jesus is to align yourself with the very fabric of the way the world was made to work. You with me? All right. The second reason Jesus is unrivaled in his merit that we see in the book of Colossians is that he can fix the thing in a person that kills relationships. Did you know that? There are things in all of us that hinder our relationships. Would you agree? Have you ever torpedoed a relationship? Maybe not fully, maybe partially. Maybe you're like, I mean, I feel like I do my best sometimes to torpedo my own marriage sometimes and I don't get why. And it's one thing when you understand, uh, when you understand like why you did something, but you, have you ever sort of launched one of those torpedoes to, that hurts a relationship and not understood why you did it? Have you ever not understood your own actions? This happens to me on a, on a regular basis. And I'll, you know, none of you want to confess to this. I'll be open and honest with you. And then hopefully we can all just can be honest, okay? The, the reality is this. I will regularly, uh, I'm prone to being passive aggressive. I've mentioned that before, right? Y'all know what passive aggressive means, yes? 
little snide remarks, little with, withholding of affection. I'm prone to that. I don't, I don't know where it comes from. It's in there. I despise it. I fight against it. But there are times, there are days where I will wake up and there will be no trigger event. There will be nothing anyone has done. And I will feel a, an emotion of just wanting to be passive aggressive rising up within me. It feels like, a, like I'm tied to train tracks and the train is coming of passive aggressiveness and it is going to take control. That's what it feels. Some of you are laughing. I hope that means because you know what it feels like, right? Where you're thinking, have you ever, whatever, it may not be passive aggressive, but I'm guessing you have things that you recognize you're prone to. And sometimes it feels like you can't, you just can't stop yourself. You don't know why you're moving down the road. You know, it's dumb. Like as you see the train coming, you're saying, get off the track, get off the track, get off the track. And you just stare at it and it hits you. And next thing you know, you're making little snarky remarks to your dear spouse who did nothing right? I am, I'm prone to this in my life. And I'm guessing you're prone to something similar or something like it. But what I love and what I am learning as I walk with Jesus is that he claims to be able to change that about me, that I am not sentenced to always watch that train of passive aggressiveness coming down the track and just say, well, I guess I'm going to get hit by it again. I'm not sentenced to that. Because Christ says, I can fix that thing in you that breaks relationships and causes harm to those friendships and that marriage that you're in. I can do that. Watch what he says in Colossians. In case you wonder, like, does he really say that? He says it. Look at, I'll just read from chapter three. Uh, chapter three, verse three, he says this. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, oh, how I wanna do a deep dive on that right now, but I won't but I just want you to hear the beauty of that sentiment. Picture it. What is he just painting for you as a picture? If you are in Christ, your life, the true version of who you are is hidden in the heavenly places with Christ in God. In other words, he sees the fullness of who he is causing you to become and he knows it and it's so real it is such a reality that Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says as a promise, he will, he will complete the good work he has begun in you at the coming of Christ Jesus. Do you know that? It's a reality, right? I won't always be prone to that thing I'm prone to now. And then look, look at how he goes forward as if to elaborate on that idea in verse nine through 14. Just listen now. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Did you catch that? Put off the old self and put on the what, church? The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, I love that because renewed is what, is that past tense or present tense? It's present tense, right? It is being renewed. It is happening. So I have put off the old self. I have put on the new self but that new self is not as if it's just like a, a done deal and I don't have to do anything. I participate with God in the renewal that he is working because my new self is being renewed. It is in process of being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I simply want you to see this. What makes Christ so unrivaled in worth is that he is able to take you and cause you to put off the old and put on the new. He's able to do that. And far too often as Christians, we walk in a fatalistic manner that says, I really struggle with this thing, thing X, whatever it is. I really struggle with, you name it. I guess I'll always struggle with it is the attitude I hear expressed over and over again. But according to this, Christ is able to take us out of the old self, put us in the new self, and then to cause that new self to be renewed by the knowledge of him who renews in in the image of our creator. So far from being fatalistic, what Colossians is gonna tell us is, oh, you worship one who's so unrivaled that he can change that thing that's broken about you. Now, come along, my friend, and participate with him. Join him. Let him do it. Don't resist him. The third reason we see that Christ is unrivaled in his merit, and these last three are kind of going to go hand in hand, is that Colossians shows that he controls the physical world. That he controls the physical world. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. In case we are prone to think of Christ in just these like personal and intellectual ways that we've touched on so far. He expands his claims of unrivaled absolute worth by pointing us to his control of the entire physical universe. In chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So here's what we have there, just very briefly and quickly, right? What we have there is a statement that all things are created through Christ. In other words, he's present as the creator, which implies ownership, right? It implies that he then is in control or, or owns these things. And then they're created not just through him as if he then, <clears throat> excuse me, as if he, uh, in a deistic universe, the belief is that God creates and then he backs away from it like a clock that he set winding and then he just let the clock run the way he wound it to run. But Colossians says, no, no, no. He's not like a clockmaker who wound the clock up and then backed away. He created, all things created through him and they are created for him. In other words, he actively engages with every piece of the clock of the universe that he has made to dictate its purpose. And to say, this is why you exist. You exist towards this end. You are for me. And as I determine your purpose, that is your purpose. So he's actively engaged. And then he goes even further. He doesn't just say all things are created through him. And all things are created for him. He goes on to say the next thing in verse 17 now. Where he says, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That's a key phrase. In him, all things hold together. In other words, right, what he's proclaiming is that if Christ did not, through the power of his word, cause the universe to be held together, entropy would reign and everything would fall apart. The entire universe would cease to exist if it were not held together by the person of Jesus Christ. That is a claim of absolute sovereign control of the physical universe. He's not just saying, I'm in charge of the spiritual stuff. He's saying, I control the entire 
physical world. Everything that was made, visible and invisible. It's created through me, it's created for me, and it is held together by me. This is the claim of the unrivaled Jesus. So here's what that means for us, right? It begs a lot of questions about natural disasters and difficult things that happen in the world. And we'll touch on those things as we get a little deeper into the dive on this subject. But the thing I want you to see is this. When Christ says, I claim absolute sovereignty over the physical world, it means for us that we do not have to fear that anything will befall us in the world, in the physical universe, that he has not ordained. You do not have to fear. You do not have to fear. He controls and sovereignly dictates what happens in the physical world. The next reason that Christ is unrivaled in merit is that he has complete authority, not just over the physical, but over everything in the spiritual world. He has complete authority over everything in the spiritual world. Look again at verse 16 of chapter one, what we just read. And it says, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and what? Invisible. That's not just a nice little turn of phrase. Like I said, visible, I should probably say invisible next, right? It's not. He's saying, I am in charge of not just the visible things. I didn't just create the visible things. I created the invisible things. The scriptures are very clear, friends. They are very clear that there is an unseen spiritual world, spiritual realm that exists and that our world is permeated with, right? It's why we pray. It's why we talk to God. Spiritual presences are real. Spiritual entities are real. And there are those that serve and worship and submit to God in Jesus Christ. And there are those who rebel against him and seek the destruction of people made in his image. Which is why the scripture tells us that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. The short way to say this is Satan and demons are real things. Okay, They are real. And they really operate in the world. And the good news that Christ is giving us here is that he is saying, I am over in authority, all of them. They all bow the knee to me. They can do nothing outside of my allowance, right? So in chapter two then, look at how he says, chapter two, verse 15, he says this. Talking about the cross in verse 14 and what he did at the cross, canceling canceling the legal demands of our debt that stood against us, Then in verse 15, it says, he disarmed. This is what else he did at the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now the rulers and authorities spoken of here are not earthly rulers and authorities because he's talking about the shame that these rulers were put to through the cross, specifically speaking of rulers and authorities of a spiritual nature. He's talking about dark demonic forces and saying that at the cross he has defeated them. That's the simple version of this. One of the reasons Christ is unrivaled in his worth and merit is that he rules over every spiritual entity and they have no authority that is over his authority. I've seen this play out in ministry, perhaps the most... um, uh, maybe the right word is intense time that I experienced. This is a girl named Adie Sherman who was uh, a student in a ministry that I ran for a number of years and she had grown up on the mission field in a, in a part of the world where there was a, just particularly prone to demonic spiritual warfare and attack and is one of the reasons her parents moved back off the 
location that they were because Adie had really begun to, she had had some experiences that had caused her to be open and subject to some demonic attack. And she had begun to really see demonic presences uh, constantly, uh, particularly at night. They would frighten her to death. I mean, just scare her. And um, so we started meeting when, when they moved back to the States and just talking through this and praying about it. And she was doing pretty well. And we, she went with us on a mission trip to Mexico. And we had one night, we'd been working hard uh, evangelizing and doing some building stuff. And we had gone to bed for the night. I had gone to bed for the night. And some of the college students who were with us were still up. And I was in the guy's dorm and the girl's dorm was next door. And one of my female leaders sent a guy in to wake me up out of sleep and just said, hey, Sarah needs you, 80's not well, something's wrong. And so I said, okay. And I mean, I, I knew 80 and we'd met. And so I knew, I knew what was wrong. And so, you know, I got up, jumped out of bed and went and sat down with she and Sarah. And we began to talk and just, again, she was, she was, seeing these demonic presences and they always had a similar pattern. There were things that would, that would always kind of take place and go on. And, and um, so we began to talk about things we talked about and what was true, what was not true. And, um, you know, having her describe what she was seeing and encountering and, and hearing. And uh, so we began to just, we pulled out the Bible and we began to pray and claim what was true, you know, and, and read things like Colossians chapter two, verse 15, right? And dictate to the enemy who he was and what his end was and it's interesting, the more, the more we tried to ask questions, the more we saw 80 just kind of recede back. It was like she was fading, right? And, and she just got a glazed look after about 30 minutes of us in conversation. So we just stopped right there and so we just have to pray and we just have to keep speaking what is true. And so Sarah and I just did that. And after about 45 minutes of it, you saw the reversal of that. Like the glaze began to kind of the lift from her gaze and her eyes and she began to kind of, be able to re-engage with us and enter into us. Uh, we, didn't, we did not speak to any demonic presence. I don't advise that in these kinds of encounters. Uh, what I do advise is that you claim the authority of Jesus over all demonic authorities and spirits. And so that's what we did. And we just did it constantly over and over and over and over. And after 45 minutes, an hour, all of a sudden it was just, 80 began to kind of draw back in and that demonic influence, you know, began to fade. And it was one of the most remarkable moments, the most direct time I've ever seen. I've had plenty of different opportunities to, to kind of um, be present in these kinds of environments and see the kingship of Jesus. But this was perhaps the most evident where some of what I'm describing may just freak you out. I don't know uh, how you feel about it, but the reality is this. Um, Jesus is Lord over every spiritual entity. And what is so magnificent is just to watch. Again, it wasn't just as simple as going, Jesus, and the demons flee, right? But, what it, but you don't need magical spells. You don't need some special fascination with, the, with dark things. I, I, you shouldn't have that. But the name of Jesus, my friends, demons flee at the name of Jesus. And you proclaim his lordship and the victory of his cross and you go to work in prayer and you see, you see the reality that demons know they have no authority over him. He is unrivaled. He is unrivaled in his authority in the spiritual realms. He always will be. So we have no fear. The last area that we see where Jesus is unrivaled is that he is unrivaled in that he is wiser than everything in the philosophical world. Look at uh, chapter two, verse eight and nine. It says this. 
See to it then that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. All right, so you need to understand what a philosophy is. A philosophy is a guiding set of ideas or principles that dictate to you the way you view the world. That's what a philosophy is. So if I have a philosophy of this or a philosophy of that, I view that thing through the lens of a set of principles and ideas that then dictate to me what I think about the thing that I'm looking at, right? So your worldview, the way you look at the world, the lens through which you look at the world is determined by your philosophy, Right, of what the world is and who made it and where it comes from and what is the purpose of the world. All those kinds of questions are very key in having a world view about you know, the way you look at the world. So what Christ is claiming here, Paul is claiming, inspired by God in writing this, he is claiming that Christ is not just superior to everything in the spiritual realm and Christ is not just superior to everything in the physical world and dictates it and controls it. He is claiming that Christ is superior to every earthly philosophy about the way the world works and life. He is saying that he is the perfect representation of wisdom. Philosophies are always aimed at, at wisdom, right? I have a philosophy about the way something works because I want to engage it, what? Wisely. I want to understand the way it actually works. And then I want to be able to engage in that way. That's why you have philosophies, right? And what this is saying is that there are all these, would you agree that we live in a world filled with, world, with interesting philosophies? Right, so Paul is writing to the Colossian church and what's interesting is he didn't know the Colossians. They were founded by a guy named Epaphras who came to Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And when he came, then he returned to his home in Colossae. And when he returned to that uh, home, he shared the gospel with people and a church formed. And Epaphras probably led that church. And so now Paul is just writing to these dear brothers and sisters whom he loves whom he's never met. He's just saying, I adore that Epaphras has ministered to you and you have come to faith in Christ and we're brothers and sisters and we've never met. This is amazing, right? And as he's talking about that, one of the things that he says to them is, um, as he's talking to the Colossians, as he is uh, saying to them that, you know, I know Epaphras ministered to you, but you need to let go of these worldly philosophies that you have because the thing that's happening, it's a little bit debated by scholars, but the thing that seems to be happening is that there is this weird philosophical teaching that has taken hold in the church. It seems to be some combination of like a pagan New Ageism and Judaism, which is a weird combo. Right, because it's this kind of legalistic rules-based faith idea uh, kind of combined with a whole lot of human-centered, new-agey kind of stuff. And those philosophies weirdly have mixed. Would you say we have some weird mixing of philosophical ideas in our world today? And so we might relate to the Colossian challenge. And Paul's writing and he's saying, those philosophies do not hold a candle to Christ. He is true wisdom. So don't look to, like, you heard about Christ and now we've got to get beyond him to some other thing that is wiser and he's a stepping stone to the next thing. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. He is the sum total of wisdom. You never go beyond him. You go deeper into him and you understand what wisdom is. He's superior to every, every earthly philosophy. As we look at the book of Colossians, the thing you're going to see is all these things are going to come up again and again. And we're going to kind of dive deeper into them and what they look like and what he teaches us about them. But the thing that you need to know is that in all of it, over all of that, what Paul is going to claim for us is that he's 
unrivaled in his merit, and he's unrivaled because of all of the things that we mentioned just now, and, and other things are going to come up as well. But ultimately, that unrivaled merit is fully expressed and most fully seen at his cross. Because only one of this kind of unrivaled merit could turn absolute defeat into absolute victory. And that's what Jesus has done in his death. By pouring out his blood, through being conquered, he conquers. Through being ridiculed and insulted, he becomes the one who reigns over all. That's what he wants us to see. It's through the cross. And that's gonna set a pattern for our lives. It's gonna tell us the way of true wisdom as we see that. So now as we close our time together in worship, my encouragement, in fact, team, why don't you come on up and we'll close our time by singing together. I hope that whets your appetite for the book of Colossians. I hope you'll come back week after week. We are going to study and examine and see the unrivaled worth of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Colossians. We thank you for the specific people to whom it was written and the challenges that they faced that then you recorded a letter uh, from Paul to them so that we might have it, so that we might encounter and face our challenges with better wisdom and grace and truth. And So we pray, Christ, that you would take hold of us in this time. I pray specifically for those who are not in you, who are not your followers, who have not given themselves to you, that they would see that you are unrivaled in worth and that you call for their life to be given to you. For those of us who claim to be your followers, may we be more and more surrendered to you. May our lives look more like your life. May our wisdom align more fully with your truth. May we walk in you. May we treasure you first and most. We pray in your name, Jesus. You are our king. Amen.